On the Empire Podcast this week, we talked to the great Richard Linklater, director of The Remarkable Boyhood, and fast-rising Irish actor Jack Rayner drops by to natter about Transformers Age of Extinction. Plus, we tackle those films and begin again, and there's all the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that could defend better than Brazil. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As with last week, we've got a serious staff shortage this week. Lots of people gallivanting away on holidays and set visits and junkets and whatnot. So I'm joined by just two colleagues to chew the cinematic cut. And you know what? We quite like it with three. This may become the regular scene of things. Anyway, first up is our editor and walking pub quiz machine. Stick 50p in him and just see what happens. Go on. See what happens. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Yeah, I like to think of myself as an it box rather than a quiz machine. I want people to touch all those buttons and then make me get to that bit on the Monopoly board that gives you another go. Ooh, yeah. Do you prefer coins or cards? In general? In terms of people inserting things into you. Ah, good question. Um, Possibly the best I've ever been asked. I would say I prefer when people insert coins into me. Next up we have our art house guru, a man who once blew a month's wages on a pub quiz machine in a desperate and futile quest to see if there any Ingmar Bergman questions. It's Phil Dissemblian. Hello. Hi. Hello. How, How are, are you? you? Good. I have good. some Ingmar Bergman trivia for you. If you like it. That's, no. a, that's the name of your, your, your sub-podcast. Have I got some Ingmar Bergman <laughs> trivia for you? Brackets, if you want it. Do we have a choice? No, let's go for it. Let's go for it. No, you'll like this because I, I discovered right today, whilst I was doing my morning Ingmar Bergman web research. <laughs> your morning, your morning, my con- I thought your morning, morning prayer to Ingmar Bergman. My morning constitutional. Um, that Van Halen, no less, yes. wrote a song dedicated to Ingmar Bergman. No way. They did. Jump. It wasn't Jump. No, it wasn't Jump. I wish it had been Jump. That would have been great. Call the Seventh Seal. I'm going to give you a sample of the lyrics here. Of uh, the Seventh Seal by Van Halen. Okay, inspired <clears throat> by the film Wild Strawberries. Inspired by exactly. Broken now, I can't help but feel someone cracked the Seventh Seal. Mm-hmm. Nothing sacred, nothing left unturned. When nothing simple, then nothing's learned. Ooh. So take me down to the Virgin Spring. Uh-huh. Uh, there's oh, another oh, one reference. Good. Wash away my suffering, uh-huh. because and I'll say this with candor. I just want to go home and watch Fanny and Alexander. What? Sorry, give me that. No, I made that. All oh, right. Okay. Good. <laughs> I wonder if people can tweet in some examples of songs written specifically about filmmakers. Because there's that one we just discovered. Big Audio Dynamite's E equals MC squared, which is dedicated to the entire oeuvre of Nick Rogue. Worth worth checking out, because it pretty much goes film by film. It's I think they just basically brought up the IMDb page of Nick Rogue and just kind of name-checked every film in order, um, up to and excluding The Witches. So if you have any, any other suggestions. You know uh, Andrew WK's Party Hard is in honour of Die Hard. Is it? No. When you say something that's actually real and true, can we have a bell sound? The thing is, Ali's face is utterly impassive at all times. Let's get on with your questions. Posed one to you. A good one, Phil. Please do tweet in, do Facebook in, uh, do email in if you can. But here are your questions. You've been sending them in all week. Uh, Twitter, via at Rob T. Andrews, who asks, apart from Attack of the Clones, what's the worst movie you've ever given five stars to? Did it actually say apart from? Or did yes. you add that bit no, so no, we don't no, talk no. about it's it? No, 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 it's here. It's here. You can uh, see it. Apart okay. from Attack right. of the Clones, Rob okay. T. Andrews. Did we get that five stars? No way. No. Okay. Um, My answer to this would be not necessarily the worst film we've ever given five stars because that would take a long time to go through all of them. But I remember being gutted in the extreme with, uh, with Public Enemies. I remember thinking that was not a five-star film. Mm. I, I, yeah, I'm a big Michael Mann fan, but I can kind of see where you're coming from. 
I think the digital photography in that film is really difficult to get past. And I think for a lot of people, it still looks quite murky and blurry. And like you're watching it on an HDTV, which doesn't quite have the refresh rate set right. But uh, I think it's a good film. Weirdly enough, I think his post-heat films, of his post-heat films, I actually quite have a soft spot for Miami Vice. But that's another question. We'll get into it another time. It looked that again, like it doesn't answer the question. It's not the worst thing. There are there are movies which are just so divisive where you go, well, I'm sorry, I don't like the tree of wooden clogs. It offends me on a personal level. I don't view it as five star film, but other people will, and it's hard to have that argument. The one thing I would say is not a five star film in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe in one way is you only live twice, which we have given five stars. Now I have a couple of issues with this. One of them is the uh, the joyfully sexist conversations that are inherent in most James Bond movies, but this one has a particularly strong and rich and deep vein of sexual bullshit. Oh, tell us more. Here's an example. There's a there's a point where Tiger Tanaka is... She's a lovely... She's a filly. She's a Japanese. fine... Yeah, filly. Mm, she's a beautiful woman. And she's explaining to James Bond in Japan that <clears throat> this, essentially. You know what it is that makes the Japanese women fascinated by you, don't you? It's the hair on your chest. Japanese men all have beautiful bare skin. James Bond, Sean Connery, responds with, Chinese proverbs say, Bird never make nest in bare tree. <laughs> uh, that the- manages to be sexist and profound. Here's, um, here's another one. Well, In choosing a masseuse, Tanaka says, Good choice. She's very sexful. <laughs> she does Yes, she does. Yes, she does. Um, Rule number one, yeah. never do anything yourself when somebody else can do it for you. Oh, Tiger. We yeah, gave we, that film five stars. We gave that film with the Roald Dahl dialogue, that, or as I like to call it, dialogue, really, really creaky <laughs> sexist stuff, five stars. Now, obviously, it's got an amazing climax. and you No, know, it oh, was well. two stars until the ninjas, right? And then yeah. the ninjas brought <laughs> throwing stars, three throwing stars. I have a really soft spot for You Only Live Twice. I don't know whether it's five stars. Honestly, I don't know whether any Bond film is a five-star movie, not even Licensed to Kill. And that um, is very sexful. That is very sexful. Oh, my word, it is sexful. The best Bond girls are in Licensed to Kill. Carrie Lowell's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I don't think there are any... Yeah, there are no five-star Bond films. None. Uh, they're all they're all amazing. They're all five stars if you have your nostalgic hat on. But I think no. Casino Royale is close to five stars. Well, the, this is the thing: is that James Bond kind of lives in its own genre and is reviewed under its own terms. Like Skyfall is five stars to so many Bond fans, mm. but is it really a five star film? Honestly, you only live twice. I love it when I watch it, but you are laughing at some of the creakiest, most sexist, awkward stuff. Don't forget the racism. That's the racism. The, uh, the, this is a, a film if you. If you haven't seen You Only Live Twice, it is, it is probably, for me, the best of the Connery Bonds. But anyway, it's uh, got this extraordinary sequence where James Bond goes to Japan and disguises himself. And Connery is six foot two, six foot three, something like that. Uh, so, and he disguises himself as a Japanese man and he does so by brushing his wig forward and putting on some eyeliner. <laughs> it is, it's, it's just jaw-dropping it's yeah I couldn't find him in the next scene he he looks as much Japanese as he looks Russian in other films or Spanish Egyptian in other films no I'm telling you I'm from Okinawa (laughs) it's a lynch course just outside St Andrews (laughs) (laughs) I mean if if you want to do anything today if you listen to this podcast just pause it now and go to www.seanconnery.com which says on its homepage which only fills a quarter of your average screen that you can download a full-size wallpaper for your Windows 95 or Plus oh, machine. No. I wonder if that film is seen in Japan, whether that was just released as a, as a straight-up comedy. 
<laughs> I think they should just called it the Japanese for sexaphone. Yeah, it was like the first Casino Royale. It just stands apart from the rest of the Bond canon in Japan. They're just like, what's going on here in this it's film? This is ridiculous. Uh, um, what is, was the question? The question is, uh, worst films we've given five stars to now. I um, think that's about... I don't like the phrasing of that. I don't. They're not... The, the Worst is unfair. Often, apart from Attack of the Clones, obviously, which is genuinely bad. Um, you didn't give a five stars film. Okay, whatever. You try and um, find any <clears throat> uh, right. record. <laughs> been, yeah, you retconned your own review. Um, I, I, the, wasn't, I didn't retcon it. Mm, okay. It was it was upstairs. No, upstairs. Upstairs. This is like the Khmer Rouge. It's a year zero on that whole thing. Um, no, no, I came so close to being wiped out myself, you know. Mm. Disappeared in the middle of the night. <laughs> Bleached. Yeah. To a re-education facility just outside Shastri <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> just outside Camino. You need it. You need re-educating, Chris. Um, I, uh, worse is tough. I mean, often these are four-star films that are, that we've given, well, people have given five stars to. Michael Mann. I mean, Michael Mann, which of his films have not got five stars? Well, let me tell you Even this. Even The Keep got five stars, didn't This it? is the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is... Uh, we have given a lot of films five stars over the years. We've over 25 years. We've given something like 700, 720 films five stars over the, over that time. There's a... there's a. We have a one-shot here that we brought out four or five years ago with 500 five-star films in it. Uh, a, 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 an IMDb user called Tom245-32-153383 has uh, created a list or to his friends 547912 <laughs> yeah. he's created a list uh, of every film Empire Magazine's given five stars to I don't know it was last updated six months ago so come on Tom pull your finger out some interesting ones in there and yeah I was flabbergasted I love The Keep I love The Keep but it's absolutely not a five star film it's on there I don't know how we gave it five stars but we did Cloverfield is a film I would take exception to I haven't rewatched it recently and just you know it's I'm not sure during a monster movie you should be willing the monster on <laughs> to crush and decimate and destroy oh, I see what you're saying when, you, when I watch a monster movie I want it to crush and decimate and destroy to an extent just not the lead characters I'm meant to be rooting for I see. precisely yeah, yeah. You, you what's decimate Des- decimate means you know, decimating you know, remove decimate one out of ten yeah remove Des- one out of ten ah oh, decimating yeah. oh decimate sorry yeah. I heard something completely I used it in the wrong context thanks for pointing it yeah like when I use non-plus but then I apologised during the live podcast but then I cut it out because I thought it was too boring and then I brought it up again in this podcast yeah. and- I'm sitting in Helen's chair she always picks up the decimate thing because it's a Roman term, isn't it? They took one person out of ten Let, and killed yes. them. Let, let's let's use, use the word Latin. The Romans, not the <laughs> Latins. Yeah, okay. It wasn't Sorry. like Spanish wasn't people. Like, yeah, okay. Julio Ingle- Yeah. Anyway, go on, Chris. I interrupted. Uh, you. No, I was just saying. Uh, this list is interesting. Uh, you look at it and you go, "Yeah, five stars." I can see why we gave five stars. There's some obviously incontrovertible, inarguable classics on here as well. Uh, Intolerable cruelty is one that stands out to me as uh, a film we get five stars I have a to. huge soft spot for that film I really enjoy but it's not five stars it's, it's not five stars I give it a very complimentary four the other interesting question is the, some films age better than others your film's not going to be five stars forever potentially or maybe it'll get better maybe it'll you know I noticed that we gave back in the day we gave Ace in the Hole the Billy Wilder film which just recently came out on Blu-ray over here uh, for the first time four stars I mean that's for me a solid five star yeah, film solid and five one star. of the greats yeah. as well oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. so I don't know I mean it's an interesting one I think some films have a real impact that's driven by technology Gravity is one I'd be interested to see how that ages it's a five star film now will it be uh, uh, Avatar 2 
We've already reviewed it. <laughs> yeah, we've given Avatar 2, 3 and 4, 5 stars. Avatar, comma, 2. <laughs> Avatar as well, exactly. And Titanic, which when it came out, the spectacle was breathtaking. I remember Barat getting five stars and I was like, I bloody, I 100% agree. I love it when Empire gives an, uh, a comedy five stars because that takes balls because obviously com- comedies are very much of their time. Yes. And I have rewatched it and I still find it very funny, but it doesn't. It's just a one leg short than the other and it kind of falls over a bit, especially during that naked wrestling thing but very few comedies stand up to repeat of viewings yeah Ghostbusters is one of those rare ones where you go right well this will last forever yeah. but but so many don't and that that's why I say when I see Empire and you know other magazines and whatever go right here it is this comedy is five stars go see it mm. I kind of love it comedies are a great example actually what Phil was talking about in terms of how films grow uh, and sometimes diminish over time of course we gave uh, the original Anchorman three stars and I think you know most people agree it's a five star classic uh, I gave Step Brothers three stars uh, and I rewatch that film at least once a year now. It, I think it's fantastic. Um, so I think these things change over time. Just um, looking here, um, Wayne Wang's Smoke, which is a perfectly enjoyable indie, if you if you haven't seen it with uh, Harvey Keitel and William Hurt. There are ones you disagree with, you know. Yeah, exactly. There are ones you disagree with, but you disagree with them maybe by a star or two stars at the most, you know. For example, the last Hobbit film we gave five stars to. Do I think it's a five-star film? Have you seen it twice? No, I don't. A lot of people do. But for the most part, I think our track record is actually pretty good, despite what the hate mail may say. Right, enough of uh, blowing our own trumpets. And let's move on to the next question, which is from at West Roba, who says, Having been inspired by a recent Hemsworth article, uh, this is an article about Luke Hemsworth, who pops up in Noel Clark's The Anomaly, uh, which is currently on release. Who, who is your favourite acting family? Oh, the Wayans. <laughs> the Wayans. Oh, that's good. A good shout out for the Wayans. You know, um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to I'm going to get you sucker, which was written and directed by Keenan Ivory Wayans and was a spoof of black exploitation films, and um, it, it's very very funny, and I think uh, better than any of the Wayans spoofs since. So if you haven't seen I'm going to get you sucker check it out and mind? if you're also looking for black exploitation spoofs Undercover Brothers also very good do you mind if I weigh in here hey this would be a sensible time to mention the Fonda family isn't that right Ali because we've just done an interview with one of them I feel like I've gone to bed with him uh, it's I, <laughs> I, I edited the the big like the interview obviously which you and, and, and your brother did uh, Phil and uh, then it was transcribed and then it was uh, filtered down and then we've put it on the website as a kind of a broken down thing because he is just so great and there is no one in the world finer at saying the words far and out he is far amazing man. he is just he is such you guys are hysterical a legend and what I like most about him I guess what I'm most jealous of is that he is a walking talking living legend with so many stories and mm. is so full of interest in everything he's got a great memory <clears> as he keeps saying seems to keep forgetting that he keeps saying it and He's a very cool dude, but he can also walk down the street and no one will recognise him. How many superstars that you can fully say are walking, living, talking legends can actually walk down the street and no one will bother them? We've been quite blessed in this particular nondescript booth down the couple of years we've been doing this because we've had, I think, probably the second slice of the 60s. Because Terence Stamp felt like there's a bit of the 60s came in and chatted to us for an hour. And he pretty fond of none more 60s. And uh, John Borman, uh, John Borman, yeah, but I mean, not he's not oh, really you mean, quite you mean iconic. As, you mean iconic I, yeah, stars? Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, also, William Friedkin felt like the seventies were in the Roger house. Moore. More everything, mm. the forties, fifties, <laughs> all of it. Uh, it was it was an amazing experience to be listening to his tales. Yeah, that that Peter Fonda spoiler. 
Peter Fonda spoiler special. Yeah, he dies in the end. Peter Fonda special podcast is now available to listen. It is an absolute belter if you uh, want to check it out. But yeah, the Fonda family. So, so take us through them. Derek, <laughs> Derek Fonda, N- Nigel Fonda, <laughs> P- um, Peter F- Henry Fonda, obviously. Henry Fonda, yeah. uh, Jane Fonda, his sister, Bridget Fonda, his daughter. Yeah, who retired from acting years ago. Mm. And she, is I mean, she married Danny Elfman? Now married to Danny Elfman. Bit of a loss, I, I thought. Yeah, I thought he was he was very interesting talking about his relationship with his daughter. Obviously, they talked, they chatted about scripts, and and he gave her his advice. Um, his his relationship with his dad, I think, was was pretty frosty for a long time. I think his father was a fairly sort of rigid, strict kind of guy. He wasn't wasn't really touchy feely. They they had a kind of a um, conciliation, I think, towards the end of Henry Fonda's life. But I, uh, yeah, I don't know um, quite how close they were for the majority of it, and. Uh, but he, he was interesting how he said that the, the, the acting bug didn't, doesn't pass in the DNA. I think that's something that you wouldn't always hear from people in an acting family. That's interesting. Cause, um, um, he, you know, because you do get that. I mean, it's like with footballers often. You kind of have the, the, the son of the, it turns out to be... Harry and Jamie. Harry and Jamie. Well, yeah. I mean, it just it just you feel like there is something in the DNA. But but Peter Fonda was very much known. I mean, the sort of sort of films that he made were so different from the ones his dad made. Anyway, that you can see why he would want to kind of plough his own furrow. Tell me, Chris, the name of all the Baldwin's. Uh, well, there's Mike, obviously. Then there's Luther, uh, Adam. Adam apparently isn't related to the actual Baldwin's, which is really really strange. Uh, just incidentally, going back to the Fondas, uh, there's another Fonda as well, Troy Garrity. Who's Jane Fonda's son? And oh. who was in Four Brothers? No, he wasn't. That's Garrett Hedlund. He was in. Um, what was he in? He was in Barbershop. He was in Barbershop too. Who could forget that? And he was in Danny Boyle's Sunshine as well. And there he goes. There wasn't any Wayans films because that would bring this together quite nicely. It would do. Join one super family. <clears throat> there might um, be. It might be crossover. Uh, the Baldwin's are, of course, Alec, Stephen, William, and Daniel. Who are your favourites? Well, obviously it's Daniel. Everyone loves a bit of Daniel. Uh, yeah, I, I love the Baldwin's. But mainly it has to be said because of Alec, who I think is fantastic. This is a good opportunity for me to, to, to mention a film that I think people should see, especially if you like Westerns. If you hate Westerns, you probably shouldn't Ooh, see it because it's a Western. Um, yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Spoiler. We the Long Riders. We Walter Hill's Long Riders, 1980 Western. I was lucky enough to spend 45 minutes on Skype with Keith Carradine not that long ago for a piece in the magazine that's in this issue uh, and the full interview will be going up online quite soon he was in Hawaii uh, the big bastard but he <laughs> is obviously brothers with David uh, and Robert Carradine all of whom appeared in the in the Long Riders alongside mm-hmm. the Keach brothers James mm-hmm. and Stacy, who you know most recently from uh, Nebraska the Quaid brothers Randy and Dennis and the Guest brothers yes Nicholas and Christopher yes um, who Unusually, I guess, in a bit of unusual casting, looking back, um, play the uh, coward Bob Ford. Interesting. In this particular movie, which you wouldn't expect. That the, is the bad guys. Uh, Nicholas Guest. Incidentally, obviously, Christopher Guest is quite you know, is the more famous of the two. Nicholas Guest pops up in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation as the asshole yuppie neighbour of Clark Griswold, oh, uh, yeah. who's married to Julie Louis uh, Dreyfus. Guest appearance. Uh, special guest appearance, and then of course Brian Do- Doyle Murray, who's Bill Murray's brother. Uh, also shows up in Christmas Vacation as well, and there's a there's a, a couple more members of the Acting Murray family, including Jill Murray, who of course was in Bobcat Goldthwait's uh, God Bless America, and was very good in that. Can everyone name all of Martin Sheen's children? Uh, they're given names or they're Americanized names. Give me both. Oh Christ! Right, there's Carlos Estevez, 
There is Emilio Estevez. There is a Ramon Estevez. There is a Ramon, and then I'm out. <laughs> the last <laughs> one is Rene. Rene uh, with two E's. Uh, yes. Rene Estevez. Yes. And what do co- they do? Of course, Martin Sheen's actual name is Ramon Estevez, and one of his sons, also called Ramon, is actually mm. called Ramon Junior. Amazing. So there you go. Mm. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. Uh, you did mention John Carradine when you were talking about the Carradines. Yes. Uh, the brothers. John of course, Carradine. the other Carradine. The, there's obviously the Barrymore family. Uh, I guess we can't really talk about. Are you going to mention the Houstons? I was going to mention the Desemlin family. The Desemlins, obviously, they're huge, but uh, the Houston family. Yes, uh, Walter course. Houston, John Houston, Angelica Houston, uh, Houston, we got a problem. It, all those, all those great, great actors. Chris Danny Sears. Houston, Danny Houston, Jack Houston, Jack oh my, Houston. It just never ends. Honestly, it never ends. Houston Station. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. But which is our favourite, though? Which is our favourite? I think I have a favourite small family. If you don't mind me just bringing them up. <clears throat> so Eddie Fisher, married Debbie Reynolds, mm-hmm. who, you know. Weird Twist of Fate was 19 when she had a big breakout performance in Singing in the Rain. Her daughter with Eddie Fisher is Carrie Fisher, who had mm-hmm. a huge breakout performance when she was 19 mm-hmm. in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. They have a weird little family, and, and Eddie and, and, and uh, Carrie's mum, Debbie Reynolds, split up after Eddie Fisher went to uh, look after a very upset uh, Elizabeth Taylor. They got so over it that they you know, had an affair. But that little family is a fascinating little microcosm, and I recently read Carrie Fisher's book, which is very short but very enjoyable, which is called Wishful Drinking, which is very frank. It was originally a stage show where she kind of just delivered her life story as far as she remembered it. And she, through electroshock therapy and a lot of other different things, um, you know, what you'd expect, has lost a lot of her memory. But she's so funny and she writes in this really frank, no bullshit, hilarious way. It's about seven quid for a very short book. But it's really, really funny and I love reading it in advance of episode 7 because mm. I cannot remember the last time I saw her on screen I just can't Carrie Fisher yeah probably well she was in the remake of Sorority Row the horror film uh, and of oh. course she was in a great episode of uh, 30 Rock which begat where she was uh, a rather eccentric writer that's right uh, and and uh, it, which begat that amazing Jack Donaghy line which was never go with a hippie to a second location <laughs> yeah 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 and she takes Liz to her apartment and it's all just Wrong. It's all just hideous. Uh, yeah, she's great. But I can't. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see her on screen. Um, the foxes, fantastic, Mister. Mm, you know, Edward, James, Amelia, all Lawrence, rule, all that lot, rule fox, uh, all that lot. Yeah, good stuff. I, I, I kind of Judy Garland. It's, it's yeah, Judy Garland, uh, Rossellini, yeah, Isabella and Roberto, of course, the Sutherlands. So there's many, 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 many dynasties. So I don't know if how that would stack up with um, with Peter Fonda's theory about this stuff not passing the DNA. Maybe you just get opportunities. Yeah. You know, I really like the Fondas as an answer, though. I'd like to also mention the Bridges, Jeff, Bo, and Lloyd, which is just mm. the best list of names there could be in the world. Jeff, Bo, and Lloyd. Those are good names. Good names. Good names. We didn't answer the question in terms of our favourite. I, I I always have a soft spot for the uh, the Baldwin's. I'm gonna go for the Sheens. Go for the Sheens. Probably take the Carradines at the moment. Take the Carradines, and why the devil not? Okay, so that's our questions this week, just two, but we talked for ages about them. If you want to get in touch with us, you can Twitter us. Uh, we're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine, obviously. That'd be weird if you were anyone else. And you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, and by the way, the gentleman who emailed us uh, with a rather protracted request to help with his wedding... 
we got the email and we will be responding in due course that's all I'm going to say on that one okay uh, let's have an interview shall we Irish actor Jack Rayner made something of a splash in the independent film What Richard Did directed by Lenny Abrahamson back in 2012 it was little seen over here but importantly and perhaps surprisingly one person in particular did clap eyes on it that person was Michael Bay Michael Bay who was looking for a new young lead for his fourth Transformers movie Age of Extinction and the rest as they say is history we sent Ali to Dublin to a city still ravaged by the impact of Mrs Brown's Boys the movie to have a word with young Mr. Rayner. Enjoy. I'm here in Ireland, unbelievably, speaking to Jack Rayner. And we don't know you that well just yet. So what I thought to start things off is I'll ask you a few first date questions. Mm-hmm. Just to get to know you. That's a funny idea. Let's do it. Let's see how it works out. What is your favourite movie of all time? The Lives of Others. When I'm in Ireland right now, I'm going to say that it's The Field. Uh, what is your biggest pet peeve? Social media. Really? Fucking hate it, man. We'll never see you on Twitter. You will, but it won't be um, for any social reason. It'll be for a professional reason. Was there an incident? There was no incident. I just think that it is the worst thing that we have on this planet right now. To be honest, I'd rather we were doing this over Instant Messenger. It'd be much easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> Make the audio far superior. Um, what is your nickname, if you have one? Mark Wahlberg calls me Jackie Boy. They used to call me that in school as well. But I think it became a little bit more legitimised when Mark Wahlberg started calling me that. What are you better at than anyone else in the world? Being Jack Rayner. Really? You sure there are no challenges? No one? Just you? Just me. All right, well, well done. Thank you. Just a couple more. What's the worst job you've ever had? The worst and best job I ever had was um, I used to sell frozen fish door-to-door with my grandfather from the age of seven till about ten out of the back of a dry ice freezer van. And uh, used to knock on 100 doors a day after school. And I used to love spending that time with him. It was amazing. It was something that I will always look back on so fondly, just driving around in the evenings in that van with him. And at the same time, there were so many people who were so nasty and so horrible. But I made a lot of sales, and it was a real character-building experience. What was your patter? Did you have a, a particular shtick? I'm Jack Rayner from Clare Island Foods. Could we interest you in anything? You didn't have them under your jacket, just a series of fish. Just like that? No, I didn't. Bream I had trout. to bring them to the van. Wow. you got to convince people to come out of their house <laughs> that's a, to the van, dude. That, that's a tough sales job. <laughs> Saying to anybody... It's a tough sales job for a seven-year-old. Hi, I'm a seven-year-old boy. Come to my van. This isn't shady at all. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> This seems appropriate. What what makes you laugh the most? This is my final first date question. What makes you laugh the most? What makes me laugh the most? I would have to say probably Monty Python. Really? You're going to see the reunion? I really wanted to. I really wanted to, but I'm going to bring him to Brazil. You have no idea how good I am. They're saying it's the last time they'll ever do it as well. Well, they say a lot of things. They used to say, yeah, we're going to do just three dates. Then it was four, five, six, seven, ten, and now it's going on UKTV Gold. Are you serious? I'm not kidding. You can watch it on UKTV.gold when you get back. It won't compare to being there, though. Will it it? Are you going? I'm going on Friday. You lucky bastard. <laughs> I'm paying through the nose for it, but you yeah. know. I bet. I bet. I saw the price of the tickets, man. It was astronomical. Yeah. I Part of me is jealous of you being in Brazil. Are you going to catch a football game on the way there? No, because oh, I arrived the day after it ends. Oh, come on. It's a tough life. Terrible. Now, going back to Mark Wahlberg. Has he ever given you one of his Wahlburgers? 
Nope. He's never taken you to the Warburger restaurant? Never. When you next see him, say, Jackie boy here, give me a burger. He was selling them hard when we last spoke to him. Was he? Yeah, his whole family has this. He was selling them hard. Mark yeah. Wahlberg selling Wahlburgers. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> meant to be good. I was wondering what your um, chemistry read was with him when you first met him. We didn't do a him. chemistry read. You just in the bag, get in there. I was like, bang. Michael Bay said, come to my van. We've got a mark mark here. Uh, I do remember the first time I sat down for a table read with him, however. That oh, was yeah. a mad experience, yeah. Was it surreal out of body experience? It was a bit. And then we went outside, Nicola and I, onto the beach in Santa Monica. We were in Shutter's Hotel, which is on the beach mm-hmm. in Santa Monica. And we walked outside to have a little bit of a break. And this dude who went by the name Walter, who was this crazy, sunburnt, like, prunish looking gentleman approached her and said hi uh i just saw you walking by and i just thought you were so beautiful i had to come over and talk to you and he turns around to me and he goes are you are you her boyfriend and i went well jesus i better get her out of this situation i said yeah i am actually and he goes oh well okay do you mind if i talk to her for a few minutes is that okay with you and I was like, uh, well, you know what, man? We're actually just taking a little bit of a break from our work and we're, uh, we're, we're just going for a walk together. So if you wouldn't mind. And he said, oh, oh, okay. It's just, she's just, you're, you're just so beautiful. And she turned around and walked away at that point. And I said, you know, well, there's, there's plenty of girls, man. So, you know, whatever, take it easy. I'll see you later. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Okay, bye, bye. And he walked off. We walked around for 20 minutes, right? 20 minutes, I swear to God. We came back, we're approaching the hotel. Guy comes jogging up again behind us. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to, I don't mean to be encroaching on you or anything, but could I, could I just like, could I just have your number or something? I just, I would, I would just really love to talk to you. I just, you know. And it, at that point, it became so... It was the most awkward moment of my life. It was the most awkward moment of my life. I can't really remember. I think I blocked it out, but I managed to get her away from him again somehow. We went into the hotel. We told Mark about the experience, right? All of a sudden, the guy walks by the window. He's on the boardwalk walking by the windows of the, of the room that we're in. Mark goes over to the fire exit, and he opens the door, and he goes, Hey, Walter, stay the fuck away from my girl. And he shuts the door behind him, Right? The guy then walks down to the fire exit and he's trying to look through these blacked out windows at the front of the hotel. And eventually Mark gets up and he walks over to the door and he opens the door. And you would think that to see Mark Wahlberg standing between you and some other girl would cause you to just shit yourself and stop in your tracks. This guy looked at Mark. The penny dropped. He realized the situation. And then he reached around Mark's neck and tried to get past him into the room. At that point, Nicola jumped up. She was at the back wall, freaking out. I'm standing in the middle of the room. Michael Bay is behind the door with an iron kettle ready to knock this fucker out, dude. And Mark had his hands on the guy. He was like, hey, buddy, relax, relax, relax. She's she's a 15-year-old girl, dude. She's a 15-year-old girl. And the guy's like, he's like what? You, you're 15? This guy must have been 32, 33 years of age. You're 15? You're 15? And Mark's like, yeah, man, there's plenty of other girls outside. You got to get on out of here. It's unbelievable, man. And meanwhile, you were looking for the nearest air conditioner unit that you could pull off exactly, the Exactly, and slam this guy in the face. It was just great. I was just laughing, man. He's exactly the kind of guy that if he knocked at my door and said, do you want to come to my van? I've got fish. I'd freak. Yeah, that perfect, perfect example. I would just shut the door before you even finish the phrase. Yeah. Van. That is one hell of a chemistry read. That was it. That was my first day of reading with Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. 
trial by fire. It's a rare thing to have a Transformers movie poster that doesn't have a Transformer on it. But if you go through Dublin, there are several bus stops which are just your face. And it goes Transformers, Age of Extinction, and it's just you. Have you seen them yet? No! We need to get That's you. so sweet, man. By one of those bus. <laughs> it, honestly, I was it's like, nice. Dublin supports you. It really does, man. It really does. Ireland has my back at the moment, mm. and I'm so happy about that. It's so cool. It's so cool, dude. And I hope I'm doing them proud, and I'll continue to try my best to do that. I heard in an interview with you recently something that stuck in my mind, which is that you're a big fan of Biker Mice from Mars. <laughs> yeah. Which I am also. Unreal. If you were to be in the inevitable Michael Bay... Biker Mice from Mars? ...cinematic adaptation, who would you play? Would it be Vinny, Murdo, or Throttle? Vinny. I mean, yeah, speaking of cool. <laughs> Vinny is the coolest Can mouse. you imagine how sick that would be if I, somebody made a Biker Mice from Mars? Like a Sin City-esque Biker Mice from Mars. I'm not kidding. Like, you know, we've got, you see... I want to see that movie. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, what they're doing there. I can definitely see a similar trick being pulled up with Biker Mice from Mars. For those not in the know, Biker Mice from Mars is an amazing story of three mice from Mars who are obsessed with Harley Davidson's... Uh, and it, crazy guns. Crazy, crazy guns. There's one of them that remakes guns and fashions weapons and adapts bikes and stuff. Yeah, and they're all ripped. They're all ripped, and one of them has a black eye patch. It's one like... Of, one has a bionic arm. Yep. Yeah, big metal bionic arm. So sweet, man. It's so cool. off the hook. All right, well, look, I'm going to mention it to Michael Bay when I next see him. Yeah, we're me gonna, too. We're going to make... Do, please. Let's do it, man. Actually, you can be a co-producer. Actually, thank you so much. As long as I get some kind of percentage point, that would be great. And I think Mark Wahlberg, we might have to change one of the characters, but maybe he could be Modo. We'll work on it. Yeah. We'll work on it. The other thing is that you apparently bring a copy of Dracula wherever you go. Yeah. Is that because you just love reading, or is it... I love reading Dracula. My great-great-grandfather was the man who set the type for the first edition of Dracula to be printed. Your great-great-grandfather was a typesetter. What a wonderful thing to have. <laughs> I know. It's such a nice, oblique, weird... Isn't it? Isn't it? So that's why I have a copy of the book wherever I go. Do you have an, uh, an, ori- an original, but do you have a copy of the originally typeset? There is one. There is one in a bookshop in this city Ah. that I have had my eye on for years no one touch it guys i am after my next film the first thing i do will be to come home and buy that first edition of the book i want to ask you which bookshop it's in but then again if you tell me then someone might go and get it exactly so i can't say that is exciting it is it's not far away from where we are right now and what is the um, what's the Dracula connection aside from your grandfather? You just great grandfather, great great grandfather. Just think it's the most beautifully written piece of literature. You know, what I mean, it's it's an epistolary novel. It's just I love the fact that the character of Dracula is so ultimately evil. He's like he's unlike any other character in how just dark and malevolent and foreboding he is. And he doesn't have any redeeming qualities. And the thing about him is that everybody always tries to give him redeeming qualities in the films. And that's the biggest mistake you can make because he has to be ultimately evil in order for the rest of the characters in the book to overcome that through their faith and through their empathy with one another. And that's what makes it's it's a, it's a book about people overcoming the most dire of circumstances 
in the most beautiful, creative, and expressive way. It's not like, you know, the devil. You go, well, the devil, he wasn't treated very nicely when he was a kid. He didn't get the toy he wanted. No, this guy's just an arsehole because he wants to be. <laughs> also, you've got to think like your vampire. Surely that's when the buck stops. You can be evil. You are a vampire. But, you know, that's Twilight's got a lot to answer for. Oh, man. I was disgusted. I was truly disgusted. None of you are Vampires evil don't glitter in the sun. They fucking burn, dude. <laughs> that's, they that, burn that's science and they have sharp teeth not white Hollywood smiles bullshit it's almost like it's not real almost, almost. now you are in Macbeth speaking of great literature next year you've obviously already shot it you play Malcolm which yeah. is a pretty cool role as, it is as far as it goes was there any point on set where you absolutely shitting yourself in front of Michael Fassbender because I can imagine he when he turns it on turns on the evil uh, is a pretty intimidating sight there was one scene where he approached me with two bloody daggers and he was in the middle of a soliloquy and he actually rubbed the bloody daggers on my lips, man. <laughs> that has to stay in the final cut. That is... I hope it does, man. I hope it does. It's intense. Um, I have I've spent time prior to that film with Michael Fassbender. And I know him from home, basically. I know him from Dublin. And I was delighted to have an opportunity to work with him on Macbeth because it afforded me a little bit of time to reflect on Transformers with him and the whole Hollywood franchise. So I'm really comfortable around him and I completely trust him. You need that when he's rubbing knives in your mouth. You need that when he's rubbing knives in your mouth. Um, but I think that he, I think that he has a, a, a fair amount of faith in me as well and we have a really good rapport with one another. And he's just a total powerhouse, dude. He's yeah. just a total He's, he's a one-man army. I can't wait for Assassin's Creed. It's, yeah. he's, he's an institution Oh, and my, what I'm hearing, the rumours that are going around is that Justin Kurtzel is going to direct that too because he also did Macbeth, man. Mm. And if that's the case, Assassin's Creed is going to be something to watch I out think there's going to be more bloody knives as well. I, I think. think there might be a few more bloody knives. And this is a long shot, but I've got to wrap up. Could you give me your best rendition of Womack, you piece of shit, from The Rock? <laughs> I can't do it, man. I can't. I could never do it justice, dude. I could just never do it justice. It's just my favourite thing in the whole world. Uh, anyway, it has been nothing short of an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Jack Rayner. Nice. Um, enjoy the rest of your time in Dublin. Enjoy the whooping and the hollering in the uh, Irish premiere. Thanks. And please go pose near a poster of Just Your Face. One of our stuff. I'll do it. I'll send it to you. I'll tweet you on it. He'll tweet. I'll actually tweet you. He'll break the, so <laughs> he'll break the social media. I'll break code. my code. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers, dude. Jack Rayner there. Nice guy. I really, really liked him. That's Jack Rayner. He's done. He's just put him in a corner and move on to movie news. So what do we have? What movie news do we have? Uh, do we have anything? Well, last week was July 4th weekend and Hollywood goes to sleep. So did they wake up? Hollywood? Well, the news is that my childhood, which recently clambered off the canvas after the Postman Pat debacle that we've discussed <laughs> at length on this podcast, bruised and battered, putting yourself together. Did you see it? No. I saw the trailer got a couple of times. Got scratched in the face by Paddington. That was enough. My godson was really keen, but I just couldn't get to a screening, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and the worst uh, godfather ever. And then, Boom. Dumbo, live action reboot happened and now it's on its back getting the, getting the standing <laughs> 10 count because um, Disney have uh, apparently got the wheels in motion or the ears in motion of a live action Dumbo movie. I don't know how this is going to work. I'm assuming they're going to hire some of the Oliphants from Lord of the Rings um, for the gig, but they're going to basically take their fourth, I think, uh, animation uh, feature length animation 
and give it the live action treatment using words delivered by Aaron Kruger the screenwriter of, I believe so, um, uh, the Transformers films, Arlington Road, the Tim Robbins thriller from back in the day, and he is writing the script. No sign of a, a word of a director or exactly how that's is quite going to work, where the balance of VFX and the live-action stuff is going to fall, or indeed how the pink elephants are going to come into play. Presumably if you're a pink elephant and you've got uh, union representation, now might be a time to have a word with your agent, because Absolutely. I'm assuming they're going to need some... Uh, you'd think. Or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just do a really anodyne version about an elephant that grows up and has big ears and can fly and learns important lessons and then it ends. They're going to have to really stretch this out as well because the original film was a real cheapie for um, for uh, good old Disney that desperately needed some money after Fantasia kind of came and very much didn't make any money at all and cost a bucket ton of cash. Mm-hmm. So the full length, I believe, is around 70 minutes. Yeah. And about 10 minutes of that is the Pink Elephant's trippy, weirdo, give kids nightmare stuff. Well, if you want to get someone to flesh out something to a, a length beyond unbearable, then Aaron Kruger, the man who's written the 165 minute long Transformers Age of Extinction, is the man for the job. And honestly, he's a man for any job. Because he's, <laughs> he's brilliant, and we love him, and this, he's a great choice to do this. We were talking on Twitter. Who's going to play Timothy Q. Mouse? Dumbo, roll out! <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess for me, my ultimate would be Jay Baruchel. Yeah, there was a suggestion of Ben Wishaw. Oh, great idea! Ben Wishaw could do it with a little hat. I don't know. The Q as well, obviously, there. I don't know quite. I mean, they are making... Disney are obviously have got some live-action redos of their animations in the pipeline. Yeah, John Favreau obviously doing the Jungle Book. Exactly, uh-huh. the Jungle Book's happening. Kenneth Branagh's doing Cinderella. That's correct. That's right. And um, The Beauty and the Beast. this year. The Beauty and the Beast. It's really difficult to know quite what to make of the idea and how it's going to play out. I, I, it's going <clears> to <throat> test the VFX supervisor, I would say, to the limit. Yeah, um, surely... Uh, um, live-action's going to be pushing it a bit because surely Dumbo will have to be... An effect because to be fair, they are training some pretty good elephants these days to, yeah. to fly. So, but and maybe just get some cosmetic surgery on the ears. It sounds like Pete's dragon from where I'm standing. But you, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I hope they get the crows right because the crows are the best thing in the first in the original film, and that song they sing is so catchy and so great. Oh, the Cura song. I just really don't know how that's going to translate to now, man. It's too orangey for crows. It is too orangey. If they get the crows wrong, please stand up in the first screening of this film. You're getting crows wrong! (laughs) And then just throw your popcorn and walk out. (laughs) Because it is important to get crows right, and they need to learn that lesson. I love this film. I saw Dumbo again uh, not that long ago, and it's, you're right, it's very short, very charming. It's got one of my favourite films in any Disney film, the songs, rather, Casey Jr. uh, track. Um, And it's got some really weird stuff in it, too, for kids. Is it going to have, like talking happy choo-choo-choo trains at the beginning yeah I yeah what a bit of unstoppable it's so of its time I just don't know what they're going to do with it but let's find out let's not forget that Sleepy Hollow was a Disney animation which became a pretty decent uh, live action film who knows anyway that's 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 the news the other bit of news I just wanted to mention in passing was um, that George R. R. Martin uh, was interviewed this week by a Swiss journalist who asked him the question I think on a lot of Song of Fire and Ice's fans minds which is can you please put that biscuit down and get back to your desk and finish writing these books and he gave the concise answer fuck off 
Really? He literally told him to fuck off and gave the finger to, I don't think specifically the journalist, but anyone that was hunting him down to, to get these books finished. I think his, his, he's probably had, it, had, his, had his fill of, uh, of being pressured to write these books. I can see why. The poor guy can't step outside his house without people going, you know, finish the book, George. You put in pepper in your car when you could be finishing your book. Come on, George, time's a waste. And Don't eat that, George. That looks yeah. really bad for you. Yeah. I mean, he must have like a bazillion mothers out there just making sure he's eating well, resting up. That'd be amazing. I mean... Uh, what, what a great idea. It's, it's a, just this, this silent army of people like removing obstacles from George R. R. Martin's <laughs> way, clearing the road of anything that's sharp or going to fail him. <laughs> Luckily, he's got no idea. He's blissfully unaware. He's stepping on, he's stepping off trains onto empty platforms and someone's putting like a... Uh, <laughs> actually... <laughs> tea tray after tea tray yeah, after tea tray. <laughs> not the worst idea for a computer game. It could be like the opposite of Spy versus Spy, <laughs> where you have to go around and clear obstacles for him. You have to keep George R. R. Martin alive long yeah. enough so he can finish the books. He has three people behind him just telling him how sexful he is. You, yeah, he disguised him as a Japanese man so he can get through a volcano. No, I mean... Um, Open great hall. I Look, I haven't read the books. I'm not one of these people. I love the TV show, but um, it, it seems to me like let the dude do what he wants to do. I mean... Yeah. And also finish the damn book. But Yeah, but, <laughs> but once he's finished the book... Look, anyway, look, so there's I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm up for a laugh. Yeah. Anyone listening to this podcast, they know... You know, I'm always up for a laugh, but You're seriously, guy. seriously, get, get, get the book done. Uh, I would like to mention some some news. I like mentioning news. We mentioned his band of brothers earlier, but Alec Baldwin is in contention for a great role, and it's really making me excited. He could be the head of the CIA for Mission Impossible 5. And sometimes you hear a casting idea or that talks are in progress, and you just light up. What a great idea. The man mm. was born to be in a humongous suit telling people that they're not good enough, get out of my office of Callahan, and it's him in Mission Impossible 5. I want to see Alec Baldwin giving Tom Cruise the dressing down of his lifetime. This, so he's going to be the head of the CIA? C-I-A. But the Ethan Hunt doesn't work for the CIA. But this is what he'll be playing. But yet the CIA headquarters were in Langley, Virginia in the first movie. So is the IMF part of the CIA? I think they may be affiliated or sometimes may possibly work with each other. Hmm, this is interesting. Yeah, uh, really very interesting indeed. Uh, love Alec Baldwin. He's great. He'll probably turn out to be the bad guy, you'd imagine. Oh, shut uh, up. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, that's hope there's something here for him. Or let's hope he lasts longer than, say, Tom Wilkinson did in the uh, equivalent role in Ghost Protocol. Um, also some casting news for Mission Impossible 5. Rebecca Ferguson, not lovely Rebecca, from, uh, from X Factor, uh, who has the voice of an angel. Um, that's Stephen Gerrard, loved, isn't it? No, it's lovely Rebecca. Um, she's dead lovely. Uh, she uh, Rebecca Ferguson who starred in the uh, TV series The White Queen uh, she's been cast in Mission Impossible 5 so that's very interesting I say get Rebecca Ferguson the other one to sing the title track I like Voice it Voice of an Angel it's coming together I'm quite I'm quite looking forward to the new Mission Impossible film I enjoyed the last one yeah Christopher McQuarrie is in the uh, director's seat mm-hmm. everything's looking good I'm excited I'm on board big big news like it uh, anything else? Uh, yes, in other news, in other other news, Ridley Scott is letting God's people free in the trailer for Exodus, Movement of the People, as it's not called, um, <laughs> which came out this week and is on the internet for you to check out. Um, we've got a trailer breakdown because Ridley Scott very kindly spoke to Empire's own editor, Mark Dinning, and talked him through what he's got in store, what's in the trailer, what's not in the trailer, 
um, some general chariot chat, I imagine, and um, that's up on the site as well for you to have a look at. It's a big. It's just such an old school idea. The whole thing. We've it's got stunning visuals. The last shot is of some like sea or something, um, but it's just amazing. This humongous tidal wave that's about to engulf this tiny lost horse. Uh, it's it's obviously really Scott getting his kicks, his visual kicks once again. Yeah, yeah. Take that, Demille. You think you can do big? I can do big. Yeah, uh, but Demille. I suppose the difference would be that Demille actually got the ocean to part. Yeah, he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks like it's just such an old-fashioned, old-school kind of thing. This 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 movie, and in a way that Noah thought we thought might be, but ended up turning out to be a bit more kind of out there. This mm. looks really like traditional old school D.W. Griffith it does D. Um, DeMille kind of scale of epicness I will confess to a slight sense of trepidation about Joel Edgerton's look as Ramses uh, and also his kind of weird Al Pacino in Scarface accent but it's a trailer and the visuals are there definitely and uh, as a fan of the director's cut of, of Kingdom of Heaven which I think is really Scott's best film for for a long long time uh, I'm excited to see what he can do in this sort of area again. I must say, I much prefer, you know, Australia's very own neighbours take on Ramses. It's much better. <laughs> They're much truer to life. They wear only slightly less makeup as well. Yeah. Okay, so we also have some news here that Scarlett Johansson is in talks to star in the new Coen Brothers movie, Hell Caesar, which has got a cracking cast. What a cast this is. She's going to play an actress who discovers she's with child just as she's about to start her new film which is weird because that's exactly what happened to her in real life is this movie a spin-off of The Expendables? sadly not spelt completely differently but what a cast even better than The Expendables I would argue George Clooney uh, Cohen's regular brilliant Josh Brolin Tilda Swinton Channing Tatum uh, Rafe Fiennes who will play a director it's, a, it's about the movie biz it's it's a 1950s set movie biz thing so I expect it'll be quite Barton Finky but maybe you know more broad than that as well which could be which could be quite fun but Rafe Fiennes he showed he could do comedy so well in um, obviously Made in Manhattan but mainly uh, Grand Budapest Hotel uh, and Jonah Hill is also in talks for that one as well he's getting I, I like him, but you know, can you stop getting these amazing gigs with amazing people, please? Just Who? go. Who? Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. If Why? he is three-time Oscar nominated, I'm going to lose my shit. Why? Jonah Hill is two times Oscar nominated. Yes. And Channing Tatum isn't. <laughs> also, I just want Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill not to be in a film together for once. Oh, good point. What if it's a stealth prequel to Twenty Two Jump Street? Shut the front door. Twenty Jump Street. Twenty Jump Street. And we should mention as well that the uh, first look at Ian McKellen as a 93-year-old Sherlock Holmes in what was formerly known as Slight Trick of the Mind uh, is now called Mr. Holmes. No full stop after Mr. <gasps> what does that mean? It's a clue. It's Snowy, a cl- it's a clue. It's a clue, Snowy. And um, we must investigate it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that, that came out last night and it's him in old age makeup with a, with a hat. I've read the book and Watson is a very, 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 very minor role in it. But mm. wouldn't it be bloody brilliant if Patrick Stewart, apparently they get on, could be Watson. That would be just so great. That would be great. It's filming right now in the English countryside with Bill Condon, who was, uh, of course, directed uh, McKellen to a uh, to a Best Actor nomination. That's a fairly for sort of God's Monsters. It's a fairly it's interesting general location. Well, I can tell you where exactly. Well, it's because yeah. I was, yeah, like, was skim reading the story. Oh, I see. The people, how would people, where people know where to go? East well, I don't want because you don't want the, the set to be besieged by autograph hunters and um, besieged. That's really good because obviously he uh, mm. looks after bees. 
Does he? He does, yeah. At the end of Sherlock Holmes' life, the story of this film, in case you don't know, is that Sherlock Holmes is desperately trying to continue his existence forever, ever, 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 ever. So what he does is he researches lots of, of information about how you maintain immortality or increase your lifespan. And apparently royal jelly from mm. beehives is a great way or a way of increasing his life. And he goes to Japan to find out more about this. And um, a new a new actor's also been cast. I don't know his name, but a new Japanese actor who you may recognise from the Wolverine because he's in the Wolverine. He's also in it. So it will be partly set in Japan, with him discovering more about this character and previous interactions he's had with him as he remembers and half remembers stories of his life. Because even though he's a very very clever guy, he is as you'd expect faltering somewhat. His his mind yeah. is kind of. It's flickering on and off. You can't have four decades of solid opium smoking and not expect some cerebral damage. Very excited I, about that. I don't like the name Mr. Holmes. I preferred a slight trick of the mind. But of course, they have to make people realise what the film's about. So I suppose that what they could have done is make it sound like a sequel to the sequel of Sherlock Holmes mm. and just have it called Sherlock Holmes, a slight trick of the mind. But Absolutely. They, they decided instead to make it sound a bit like that Nick Frost project. I wonder if we're going to hear anything more about the next Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes at any point. Do you think that... Um, yeah, that's all gone a bit quiet, hasn't it? Yeah, they've been talking about the fact they had a script and they were going to look at the script and see what happened next. Um, hmm, I don't know. Maybe we'll hear some more about that. Yeah, or maybe it's just quietly dying a death. I, I don't know. It, it, it was pretty lucrative and I quite enjoyed both those films, so it'd be interesting to see what happens if that comes back. Uh, okay, we're done. We've taken movie news, we've shaken it upside down, all the movie news has fallen out. Let's move on now to another interview uh, with Richard Linklater, who of course is one of the most boundlessly inventive and versatile directors working in cinemas today. He's, he works in cinemas, part-time. He likes to go in and just clean up the popcorn. Cinema, working in cinema today. He's able to leap between the mainstream and the art house with ease, you'll like that, Phil. Uh, whether it's Dazed and Confused, School of Rock, the Before Sunrise trilogy, or the Before Dot 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 trilogy, if you prefer, or Waking Life. But his latest is his most experimental and engaging yet. It's Boyhood, the tale of a young boy whose family go through a divorce, uh, which seems pretty straightforward until you realise that Linklater shot the movie over a period of 12 years with his cast, including Patricia Arquette, Ethan Hawke, of course, and newcomer Ellert Coltrane. Uh, so they would age in real time before our very eyes. Uh, this could put Rick Baker out of a job. Uh, Linklater came to London recently and spoke to Phil and Ali. Enjoy. I've been, in, I've been here since uh, Friday, oh, just yeah. kind of getting... What have you been doing? Um, you know... Went to Stonehenge. Went to the ta- yeah, I've been coming to London for over 20 years. I realized yeah. I'd never been there. And I've got family in tow, so I was like, let's... Oh, cool. They wanted to go to Stonehenge. So as you hired a car and drove down, drove west. We took one of the buses. Yeah. Awesome. The ri- driver gives you a fun little tour, you know. Those are really good, even like... Yeah, it's fun. Because it's so it's much, fun. just don't know what anything is. We yeah, interviewed uh, John Favreau just the other day, and he did the same thing. He's yeah. coming here to do the thing, but he also wants his kids to see the London Eye and go yeah. to the Houses of Parliament. And I, I grabbed a few extra days and yeah, nice. went to the Tate, went to that, went to Harry Potter Land yesterday. Did you? The, the, studi- the studios where they shot. Which is amazing, by the way. It is amazing. It's yeah. very informative. I mean, you know, my kids, I think everybody there, it's, it's not an amusement park. It's like, here are the sets. Here's how we made the you know, the creatures, here's, it's very informative. I wish I would have seen something like that as a kid. You need yeah. to get, you need to establish like a Dazed the Confused tour. 
Yeah, we could. We well, could have a the... little tour go around. And if we were a little more like, you know, if pot was legal, you could stop here and <laughs> smoke out. And then you could have a beer here yeah. and drive around. Mm. And maybe have a driver and you could drink while you drive. Exit through the head shop. Yeah. I guess. That, that would be the name of the tour. I would love that. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Yeah, we don't care about where things really happen or the look behind the curtain of how you do it. Just, just amuse us. Is it, I mean, from a filmmaking point of view, is it kind of, is it kind of interesting to see stuff on that kind of studio scale and just yeah it's unbelievable I mean, it's like a different world it's like oh my god look at this set look how much money they spent they had entire departments but you know you think 10 years yeah it's an amazing achievement because well, they're thinking well we'll build this but we're building it for eight films yeah, yeah. so we can spend 200 million on you know because divide that over eight and then i wonder this is the question did they also have in mind, and it'll all pay for itself because people will pay for the next yeah. 50 years or 100 years yeah. to come. And, you know, Did, I wonder when that vision clicked mm, in. So. The but Blu-ray it's, and whatever. But it's funny because watching to, Boyhood, to, which is... 12 years, by the way. Which oh, no, is, we, we have Harry Potter beat, you know, for their 10 years. We had you, 12, you, so. Yeah, you crushed Harry Potter. Yeah, but it's a similar thing, really, because they wouldn't have known. <laughs> they wouldn't have known how the kids were going to grow up, whether they were going to be able to act and what they were going to look like. And so for both of you... Bit of a leap of faith. A leap yeah. of faith. So did you feel that sort of... Did you watch Harry Potter with that little bit of boyhood <laughs> in mind, just wondering... Yeah, when did Harry Potter... When was the first one, 99? I think it was 2001. Is that when it started coming out? Was it that? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it was 2000, 2001. Yeah, I remember picking up my daughter at school and going straight to the first show. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. Even then, did they have eight films in mind, I guess? Yeah. But if it would have done poorly, they might not. You know, who knows? But it's a huge decision. I'm sure they sat there with those three kids and went, okay, <laughs> you seem like you're good actors. You seem like okay kids. But it was probably there, like I was. You sort of test the parents a little bit, you know, the parents behind that. Yeah. You don't forget, a kid that age isn't really making a decision. It's the parents. And if the parents turn on the production, mm. if they start telling them, this is messing up your life, yeah, you're screwed, you know. So, and what about Laurelie's parents? Uh, yeah, I was worried about them most. <laughs> but Because um, <laughs> obviously you cast your daughter. Yes. Well, she demanded to be cast. Right now, it looks like some form of child abuse. But trust me, back then, she was had been on in other movies of mine. She was kind of singing and dancing and insisted on the part. And it did make a lot of sense. At least I would know where she would be every year. But yeah. Eller, the young boy, you know, he was six when I met him, seven when we started shooting. His dad's an awesome musician. His mother's a dancer, actress. I thought, okay, art family, mm -hmm. cool. They're not going to move to Seattle, you know. <laughs> They're going to be around, and so it was, it was them. But the kid, you still look at them and yeah. go, "What kind of young man are you going to be?" Or you know, "What are you going to do?" You know, it's a, I, it's a marriage of sorts. You're, it's sort of like a parent-child. You're like, "Well, I'm stuck with you, so I'm just going to love you and do my best with mm -hmm. you." You know, so I loved how much he changed, not just physically, but he really. Of course, we all do. Yeah. No one thinks of ourselves that way, I guess, on a daily basis. But, but Lr, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you know, Mason, the character, really, really changes. Was there a small part of you because you were doing this every year that come the sixth, seventh year, you went, "Wow, we lucked out." I don't know. It happened so incrementally. You know, mm. you'd I'd see him throughout the year, usually a few times <clears throat> at events, or we just get together. But uh, yeah, every little step of the development. I was still thinking of just that year, but every now and then I step back and go, you know, he's such an interesting young man. I really love him. But you know, the year he would have 
pimples, you know, on his forehead. And the, the makeup lady would say, hey, do you want to, you know, cover that up? I'm like, hell no. That's what this whole film's about. We're not, you know, this is a new stage we're at. So. This film is pimples. Yeah. And by the end, I think when I saw him with facial hair, you know, he had grown out some, we had two sections to do rather close, the high school graduation and the going off to college. They were a few months apart. So I said, okay, shave that off for high school because, you know, but then we'll grow that back over the summer and that'll be your final look. Yeah. Just having that little, you know, facial hair. I was like, he looked, I remember staring at him then, God, God you grew up to be like a rock star. You yeah. look like James Dean might have looked, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> I, I was thinking at some points in the film, like, you just, you know, I don't want to say too much because I can't reveal too much. It's the kind of film that you love and you want to talk about in, in detail, but you don't want to spoil it for anyone. But he's a good-looking kid. I mean, he's got the movie-style look. I know, he really does. And and the kind of ethereal quality mm -hmm. that you kind of go... You, you go toward him. He doesn't lay it all out there. There's a lot of mystery to him. Yeah. So you you he pulls you in. He doesn't kind of no. come to you, which all good stars, you're just kind of... And, and that often doesn't have doesn't have everything to do with looks or anything it's just demeanor it's like they're sitting on they're, they're hiding something yeah. or they have more to offer Lorelai um, I understand asked you to kill her character at one point because <laughs> she presumably <clears throat> wanted out <clears throat> at that moment in time did you have any any no. ideas for how <clears throat> you might do that within was it going to be a, like an asteroid strike yeah or? yeah something. no there's really a story there I didn't <clears throat> it didn't make any sense I said you know, she's like, can my character, like, die? And I'm like, no, that's much too dramatic for this movie. This isn't that. Um, no, I can, she goes, she just didn't want to film this one year. And it was actually the year, we have a little Harry Potter episode where they go to a book signing at midnight where they're handing yeah. out the books you've already pre-bought. And she didn't want to dress up, but she loved Harry Potter. So I thought, Is it, do you think you're too cool? Like, no actor would ever ask their director that they don't want to do it and they want to quit. I mean, this is a daughter asking a dad, like, yeah. what the hell? You know, so I we went ahead and filmed, but I never understood why we ended up doing it, and she was fine. I think she wanted to dress up as Hermione. She was <laughs> got stuck as McGonagall. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was part of it. But years later, I, only now I'm realizing she liked Harry Potter so much. It was such a reality to her to be filmed wearing costumes and at an event, kind of that captures it as a cultural phenomenon she tells me now like she kind of thought she was she's of that generation that it was very real to her and she kind of thought she was going to get a letter from hogwarts any second oh. and she kind of that was her world and by filming it it was breaking that reality i mean she thought she was going to maybe go off to hogwarts and date harry potter mm. not daniel radcliffe Harry Potter, you know, so isn't that sweet? But I didn't understand at the time. Her muggle director. Yeah, so was that's just, why, yeah, no, that's, she's, that's so and she's stuck, she's stuck with muggles, me being the main one. Yeah. You go I, through, I mean, you go through, there's a, there's a, a, a scene where they're discussing the best films of 2008. <laughs> and there's no sign of me and Orson Welles on that list. <laughs> Batman, Pineapple Express and Tropic Thunder. And there's no argument. No, no, those are the three those best are films. The three best yeah, there just can be no question. I do like those three films, but yeah, <laughs> they were in fact Eller's three favorite films in the summer. Eller can Eller can come work work with us. I <laughs> that's, think that's awesome. Yeah. I, I that's to I I was hoping you do watch the film going. I don't know whether that was scripted or I don't know whether that was him, but there were times where you go, "That's got to be him." That's got to be him. Got to be. Yes. I mean, we that's all one take that scene. So obviously it was rehearsed and text. You know, we had all that worked out, but I loved it. 
when at those moments when that was really the first year Eller was really full blown collaborator as an artistic person. He's in junior high at that point. How old was he then? Oh, what was he? Thirteen, maybe. You know, because when you're working with kids, it's a bit of a manipulation. You do you make it work with them, but I knew the film would kind of fuse with who he was at some point. It would become kind of. I would go in the direction he was going in. So his tastes and who he was. So even that they're sitting at the campfire and he's talking about if there's ever going to be another Star Wars. Yeah. That was that was kind of him yeah. too. What I love about that is that's so where it's being released now. This that gets year. a that gets a chuckle now. Yeah. But you know it's weird. We were filming a period movie in the present tense, <laughs> which you don't get to do often. Yeah. You know, so I mean, like like Star Wars, if there's another force parallel. J.J. Um, Abrams obviously very secretive about the new film. You've had this kind of carried yeah. around with you for a long time now. Know, and people this are like, century. tell us about Boyhood. We've heard about this thing. <clears throat> we don't know much about it. Tell us about it. And you have been able to say, I'm doing it. That's all I can say. We're doing three or four days a year shooting. Um, it must be strange for you to have this 12-year secret. Yeah. Yeah. It was a... And now to I, be able I to... I wanted it to be entirely secret. And I don't think most people knew about it. But if people like before I'd get interviewed, you know, I had a lot of other films come out <laughs> this century and I got asked about it by people who you could go on IMDB or one of these websites and it had this film untitled 12 year project. Sometimes it was called boyhood. <clears throat> Sometimes it was called growing up. What's this film coming out in 2015 or, you know, someone had done an estimate on the date cause they heard about it the very first year we filmed and I wow. hoped it would be all secret. But the word leaked out, so I have had to talk a little bit about it all these years, and I just kept it really brief. Oh, it's this little thing we're doing every year, Dad. You know, don't. But as it got closer, I'd say about the six-year mark when I looked up and we had shot, and I go, you know, we're halfway there, and the crew were all like, "Wow, it's starting to get real," and we got it's like a wave. You know, we built momentum, and you know, toward the end, it got more intense. And I'd say the last year we started. Ethan Hawke was doing press for some film he didn't like much. And he was he started he had just finished shooting with us I don't know and so he started talking about this film a lot he sh- he started blabbing about this film so it really got everyone the questions and but it was good timing we were we were finishing up did he get a letter from the Linklater lawyers <laughs> shut it shut, shut it, it Ethan no you can't shut Ethan up we think could really happily spend the rest of the day talking about this movie with you um, but we just wanted to get on to one or two other things quickly. Um, Speaking of pride, you must have felt a, a, a pang of it when you saw Matthew McConaughey get his Oscar <laughs> early this year um, and drop the line of dialogue from one of your movies, yeah, obviously. I was with him, you know, I was at the Oscars yeah. this year and just sitting behind him a few rows and, uh, you know, but in commercial breaks. Being on the Oscars is kind of like being an extra in a TV show, you know, it's a TV event or whatever. So you have these long commercial breaks and I'd walk up to him or he'd come back to me and we'd just kind of, we were just goofing the whole night. And, uh, but we kind of knew he was going to win. He had won every other thing. So he, he was very loose about it. And he had been saying the, all right, all right. You know, so he, how it's going to, how's yours? Give us an all right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. That was, that was his the, first line of dialogue yeah. in movies, mm-hmm. right? And he improvised it. Yeah. Did he he wasn't it? even supposed to work that night. He, he, um, he came by for a costume fitting. But I, I approached him and said, hey, Matthew, I realized the Tony, Mike, and Cynthia riding around, they don't even know about the, you know, it's a big ensemble movie and no one had noticed, like, wait, they end up at the party, but how do they know about it? They're not in that crowd. So I said, oh, they're here 
So what if we did a scene where you just drive by and invite him? You know, like you have to tell him. That was the only reason he mm. started that scene. I said, just to pass on some narrative information that I needed to make my unwieldy story make a little more sense. And I said, and wouldn't it be fun? My sister, who she was being my assistant on the movie, my older sister, she goes, oh, I love Marissa so much with her cute red hair. What if Matthew liked redheads or something? I go, yeah, that's a funny idea. So I took it to Matthew. What if he liked redheads? He goes, yeah, flirt with her. Because she didn't, she was never getting like guy attention in that way, even though, because she's the smart girl. It's like, what if perversely you have never noticed her, yeah. but like suddenly you kind of focus on her? It's just kind of, I love it's it. a fun it, contrast. So we'd sort of improvise. I mean, that scene we worked up that evening. But it set a tone for Matthew and myself. Like he'd go away for 30 minutes, come back with another idea. Some of those lines, like there's a new fiesta in the making. He did, you know, he came up with that. And in between takes, I would go up to him because I just saw the way Tony and Mike in the backseat were looking at Matthew. I said, oh, kind of insult him. Like, say, if I ditch the geeks or, you know, and he just kind of threw out a little, hey, yeah, ditch the two geeks in the back. You know, it, we just worked it up that night. I had a producer who thought we were just completely wasting our time and he left the set just because I was being indulgent and didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was Matthew's first night of shooting and it was a total whirlwind of kind of spontaneous creativity that he continues to uh, bring to everything he does. Um, <laughs> and Bernie is now mm -hmm. living in your garage garage apartment no, oh garage. it does it, it sounds like everyone's a dog. Here, so i'm just like where is he like just like we have the these things or... in austin it's a little college town where people have garages but real estate was kind of at a premium and you just make a little apartment above your garage so it's an apartment but it did get reported that it was a funny little odd sounding story but the truth is we had been for the last two years some a legal team and myself had been kind of focusing on his case and putting it in perspective a little bit and a judge ruled that he had 17 years he had served was probably you know Danny Buck the guy Matthew plays in the movie is the hero that looked at new evidence and regardless he's always out on bond and he's awaiting a state um has to go through his case but it looks it looks good for him he's working he's in his fifth week of work now so what's, what's happened doing? recently every relative and friend i have has lived there for some <laughs> some time <laughs> it's not that big a deal but it was a funny sounding story because it got reported that the judge had like sentenced him like i had offered it up of course but it sounded like they had sentenced him to live you know like it got reported like okay you austin liberal we'll let him out but he's got to live with you and it's like that's not the way it was it was it was on the table as an offer you know it just got reported funnily the but, richard link later like penal penal sort of i know colony there were rumors going around yeah Zodiac Killer now crashing on Fincher's couch. You know, stuff like someone passed that around. <laughs> okay, so let's start our reviews section with Boyhood, shall we? Because I hear it's rather corking. I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I'm quite surprised that it's being released at this time of the year because I would have pegged this as Oscar gold or certainly enough to get a whole bunch of nominations what Richard Linklater does here is of such a grand scale and immense scope and there's so much detail in the interview that you've just heard that I feel like almost talking more about it without just saying compliments is almost not worthwhile because the man does speak well but 
as well as the idea of this, i.e. over 12 years, a child grows up before your eyes, there is the strength of the script, inverted commas, of the story where he decides to take things, what he wants to do with Ethan Hawke's characters. He separates and distances himself from his, his, his former family. He divorces from Patricia Arquette and all that stuff. There is so much going on. It's nearly three hours, maybe just over three hours long, this film. So there is a lot to consume, but I have watched quite a few very long movies recently, including Transformers Age of Extinction. And during Boyhood, may I point out, I was never, ever bored. I never wanted it to end. I found everything that was going on fascinating. Mm -hmm. The way he gets you involved with these characters, with the family and families and how they evolve and change and, and mutate, I guess. It's all different ways of saying the same word. Mean that you could watch them brushing their teeth and you're very interested in just how they brush their teeth. I was in love with every single character in this film. He manages to bring across a reality, a believable reality to this, that you wonder whether you're watching a documentary. And yet at the same time, he manages to sneak in and, and, and incorporate some really interesting bits of cinematography, how he lights things and how he brings you in. The music is also, as you'd expect from a Richard Linklater movie, mm -hmm. really quite impressive. It's a little bit of well, what year is it? So what's my favourite song from that year? But the way he puts those songs to what you're seeing really heightens it. Wrote over the top of this uh, Spotify playlist I put up online, you can check it out on emperorline.com, uh, in honour of Richard Linklater, that he puts on um, a track from The Flaming Lips, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, and that was released in 2002, which makes me feel very, <laughs> very, 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 very old. But he, he, yeah, he kind of manages to get these really great tracks, really great tracks, and peppers them. And there's a great use of Paul McCartney at one point and Wings, and I just love this film. I almost feel like I can't give it a a decent review because I'm so in love with it. Maybe Phil, you could be a little bit more analytical of it. It will warm mm. your heart and make mm. you sad at the same time. And well, it's warm my heart too, Ali. I just wish that it was. I kind of feel like this should be out in February with all yeah. the Coen Brothers and the traditional Oscar bait. I, I don't want this to be forgotten by the Academy come next year. They'd have to have a pretty short memory to forget to forget this one, I would think. I'd yeah, hope I that right. it'll it'll linger in their minds as well because it is one of those one of those films. And I mean, there is no example of any anyone that's tried anything quite like this before. Obviously, Michael Apted Seven Up documentary series has done something similar in the kind of in the non-fiction <clears throat> arena. But um, the lengths that Linklater goes to imbue this film with authenticity and truth and realness are so understated. Mm. And so, you know, none of the beats are kind of bashed home. They're all very subtly done. And I love the way that it edits. It cuts from one mm. one phase to another and you can see subtle changes. And then suddenly it kind of, it feels like it's lurched forward like the beginning of a roller coaster because he's grown up so quickly in a, a in a small lurch. space of time. Yeah, no, it's not a lurch in that sense, but it, it's... It kind of like you move that's how life is it's just you know sometimes staccato sometimes it's mm. fluid and sometimes you get st stuck in obstacles and it, it covers all of that stuff you know the way that through the eyes of um patricia Arquette as the as the mother who's by no means always making the right choices herself she'll bring she'll bring stress into the family home and she'll she'll inadvertently cause problems and so will you know so will Ella's character and so will you know the, the, the sister you come at the end of the film and you feel like you've just watched a slice of life yes and I think that's what cinema aspires to do often I mean sometimes it wants to be escapism and it wants to be fantastical obviously and it wants to take you to you know foreign realms and alien planets and sometimes it just wants to remind you that life's really special and and it's not always easy but it's a gift and 
it's uh, it's full of moments of truth and beauty. And this film has many of those moments in it. Um, we're always reluctant when you get a film that's five stars that we're all in love with to over overhype it because you want people to discover it for themselves and not go in burden with too much expectation, perhaps. But I genuinely feel like hopefully people will go in with a open mind to whatever this film has in store for them because it will speak to people in different ways I'm sure Yeah, and there'll be moments that you can relate to and moments that feel like it's something in a coming of age film in a part of America that you don't really know that well as a British moviegoer um, but there's a universality to it that I think everybody can relate to and the music and one of the things that I came away thinking was that actually the, the music is sometimes feels obvious because it's like you know it'll end with get lucky you know where you are because it's the music's the compass almost um, but then you think, actually, no, everyone was listening to Get Lucky that year. And it was all on the radio. It was ubiquitous. Oh, no, but that he uses the music sometimes through radio or it's, like, it's, you know, it's not necessarily like, oh, it's this new time, so here's the song. He uses it mm. with a purpose. They might be in a bowling alley or, you know. Is the National on there? No. No National, but there's, a, there's an interesting... And he, he weaves it into the story as well because there's the bit where... Um, Ethan Talk- Hawke, who's yeah. fantastic in this film, talks, talks his son through the lyrics of a Wilco track, um, I believe when they're in the car together having a father and son moment and you know it's the music works on different levels as you'd expect with a link later film um, and it's very important but really it's the quality of the acting and the naturalism yeah I'm, I'm not sure that the, the kid Ella will necessarily go on to other things I feel like this is kind of his one thing I don't know whether he even wants to again we've talked at length about this in the in the, in the, in the interview but Ethan Hawke is fantastic. Patricia Arquette is fantastic. You totally forget she's an actress. You just for- and I mean that in the most the biggest possible compliment. Mm. <clears throat> you just don't. Anyway, I think we've pretty much made our point here. It is a good film. Please, if you're in any way interested, just go give your local uh, independent cinema a few of your pennies to go it, and watch it. It feels like a shining starfish amongst quite a shoal of kind of grey herring. You know, it really does. It feels so different from it. A lot of the other and uh, you know, so there's some good stuff in my, I mean, who doesn't like grey herring? Can be tasty, right? But it's nice to have something that feels very different and this film feels very different from a lot of the other films that we talk about on the podcast um, I love that it's coming out the same week ostensibly as <laughs> Age of Extinction I love it love it love it love it it's an interesting bit of counter-programming that because who doesn't want to see both those films they're both quite long but you know you could go one to the other why not soothe your troubled mind with a bit of Transformers there's a, there's a line in this film where Ella's in a dark room with his, um, with his pho- photography tutor and his tutor says something like any dipshit can take pictures it takes a real genius to make art and I think that that kind of applies to this film really are you calling Richard Linklater a dipshit? I guess no not really okay good to I know. think he's calling him are you calling him a genius? I'm not calling Michael Bay a dipshit okay fair enough five stars for Boyhood as you might have guessed from those uh, wow very very enthusiastic reviews five stars for Boyhood go and see it immediately uh, it's a good week actually it's a good week next up we have Begin Again John Carney's musical of sorts about a New York music promoter played by Mark Ruffalo who falls for a free spirited British singer played by last week's guest Kieran Knightley so what do we make of this is this once two otherwise known as twice or is it a different beast Phil Cap? yeah it's a different beast from once it's got a probably a little bit more of a Hollywood feel I think once felt like one of those films that came from nowhere real indie sensibility this has a bit of has the most indie cast ever I mean, it's got Mark Ruffalo, it's got Catherine Keener. It's got a great cast. I like the cast very much. Basically, the story of Dan Mulligan, Mark Ruffalo's character, who's an alcoholic, basically. You meet him at the beginning of the film, clambering out of bed, 15 minutes late for a meeting, drunk still from the night before, down on his luck. He loses his job at this kind of bells and whistles, New York, flash, um, music 
recording company that's run by Mos Def and basically staggers into a bar where through a um, quirk of fate he comes across Greta Kira Knightley's character mm-hmm. now Kira Knightley's character is, is she plays an English an English uh, woman who's in New York to be with her pop star boyfriend and she we discover has just broken up basically been cheated on by him and she stumbled into the bar down on her luck and got dragged onto stage because she's also a bit of a singer um, to play a song and uh, Ruffalo spots the genius that no one else can see in the bar and these two bar-crossed lovers except that they're <laughs> not really because it's not really a rom-com in that sense it doesn't really take you in the direction you might expect okay. it teeters it sort of tiptoes towards that but it takes you away at the last minute and anyway they go off and they make they make music together and, and they, they you know they, they cross New York and have this idea of recording an album on the streets of New York using ambient noise and small children that happen to be passing by um, I'm not sure the legal legalities of that but anyway that happens the music's the music's probably not quite as good as once. I think once really chimed musically. This one has some great tracks in it. Has some good tracks in it. Um, not quite that quality. And uh, look, it's a fun, it's a fun, enjoyable film. I think I was impressed with Kira Knightley. She really throws herself into it, and um, I don't think she's naturally kind of into the the musical stuff herself. But she really gives it gives it the full gusto. And Mark Ruffalo is, as always, just fantastic. Really watchable. His character is... You know what this film reminded me of? And, I mean, it is an interesting that it's been released the same week as Boyhood because you could argue that those are appealing to the same audiences. Boyhood is very much naturalistic and authentic. This this has a heightened quality to it. You know, things don't happen quite like this in real life. Mm. But, you know, so there's a bit more of an escapist vibe, a bit more of a sort of New York fairy tale to it. And uh, we gave it four stars. I... Yeah, I, w- I would say it's not quite once, but if you if you like the sound of that story and mm. you like the idea of music and you like the idea of spending a couple of hours with Mark Ruffalo and who doesn't, give it a shot. It reminded me very much of Chef, I'll be honest. Cool. The yeah. idea of a sort of slightly middle-aged, middle-aged wish, wish fulfillment thing seems to be in vogue at the moment. And uh, whereas Chef had this artist, aspiring artist, who finds that the world isn't ready for him, um, for commercial reasons, goes off, gets a van, travels around, finds himself creatively. This has got Ruffalo finding Kira Knightley, going off and rediscovering himself creatively. So I'm not equating Kira Knightley to a van, mm-hmm. but there is a similarity to that. There's parallels in that story. In that cool. Arc. The last time uh, Mark Ruffalo was in New York, he reduced a lot of it to rubble. Yes. Does he do that again? No, he doesn't. So uh, four stars. Indeed. For Begin Again. Uh, it sounds good. And uh, it sounds like a bit of a cracking week, and I think that's going to continue now with the next film, which was uh, which is How to Train Your Dragon 2, which is, of course, a sequel to How to Train Your Dragon, the surprise, uh, sensational DreamWorks animation phenomenon. Uh, we had the director, Dean de Blois, in last week on the podcast. Uh, all the gang are back in this one. Jay Baruchel, uh, Jonah Hill... Jerry Butler's back. Kate Blanchett uh, is in this one. She wasn't in the last one. She's in this one now. And, he, and uh, Ali is going to tell you more about it. Ali. I'm back. I was in it for a Ali, Were you in? No, yeah? no I wasn't. Oh. Sad, really. Right, so I've already given you one of those hyper-effusive reviews that I am want to give every once in a while. Gave one at the Edinburgh podcast where Mistaken Strangers was pounded into complimentary paste. And I'm going to do it again now because I thought How to Train Your Dragon 2 was another 
absolute surefire winner from DreamWorks. I think they have done it again. The first one was, as you say, a surprise in 2010. I don't think anybody really saw it coming, but the mixture of daring do and dogfighting and this emotional connection between uh, this young boy in this Viking island town of Burke, uh, Hiccup, played by Jay Baruchel, and his relationship with the half-panther, half-stealth bomber, half-cat, half-dog, half-your-best-pet-ever is the emotional core of both this film that I'm talking about, the sequel and the original, and the group of friends that circle around it, they're all very real and fun and cute, and it's just got this vibrancy and colour, and the music's great from Yonsei, from Sigaros, and the first film just worked. It was just this blinding flash of what DreamWorks was capable of outside of the likes of Shark Tale and Shrek and the cocked eyebrows and the big eyes and the you looking at the camera, Tim from the office type stuff. This was something different and real and it had a franchise potential and so it proves where the sequel jumps forward five years. He's now 18, a uh, hiccup, and he is having a pretty good relationship with Astrid from the first film, um, his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So Hiccup and his dragon Toothless are just exploring the world around him and finding more places. And he's got this grand map that he carries everywhere he goes. And he's got this, because he's a bit of a tinkerer, after losing his leg in the first film, which was such a huge deal and such a great example of how the first film really pushed things. You wouldn't get that in, you know, your Dumbo, for example. He'd lost his leg and he's used his knowledge of mechanics to create this uh, equipment that allows his leg to move and change and whatever, helps him fly toothless better he also has a sword called inferno which lights with dragon spit and goes aflame and he swishes it around like a lightsaber that also retracts and then spits out gas which he can then light again he's like really grown into this adventurer this pirate this errol flynn type guy but with a bit of a more nasal canadian voice Hmm. anyway so he's there things are going well for burke unfortunately there is a looming presence in the form of drago bloodvist who is the big bad who is amassing a dragon army that wants to just enslave other dragons and kind of just take over this world or this viking world Uh, in the middle of all this is hiccup trying to come to terms with the fact that he's just for the first time at the age of 18 met the mother he thought was dead this isn't a spoiler it was actually revealed in the first trailer much to people's surprise because people thought that might be a bit of a twist but it was decided to reveal that one early on she's played by Kate Blanchett mm-hmm. or uh, Carte Blanchett as I'm sure Channing Tatum would like me to call her if you've watched 22 Jump Street and it's the relationship between Hiccup and his mum Hiccup and Toothless and Hiccup and this big bad Drago character as he tries to put forward his belief in diplomacy he's not the guy going let's go kill this guy and he's not the guy going um let's defend or whatever he is just trying to get everyone to get along and seeing his mother who has become a dragon almost like museum creator she looks after and and cares for these stray dragons and if they're limp or lame she looks after them in this special place um it's a fast movie that often jumps over moments that in other films it might take longer on and you get the sense that it's been compressed slightly because there's so much to fit in it's been likened to Empire Strikes Back and there's a lot of similarities there. It's darker and, and more grown up than the Star Wars or the series and obviously there are dogfights, but I do love it. I do think it's a really impressive children's animation. I'm surprised that it didn't do better in the US. It, it surprisingly didn't lift up and lift off and take off the way maybe people were expecting it to. Mm. But I really hope it does here. I, th- I think it's maybe crowded out by Transformers because maybe a similar type of kid might want to go and see it but I do love this film it's so much better than we deserve for this kind of movie to leap forward five years is a great decision it allows to add so much colour and depth to all these characters and this implied knowledge that this world is so full of rich detail is just 
great for kids and it's great for me too. I guess I have a couple of problems with it. It made me cry a bit, which was a bit annoying. It does have that emotional punch. Uh, the relationships do really get put to the test. Some of the humour is a little bit more abrupt and blunt than I'd like. There's a recurring gag about one character fancying another character, and it's kind of done to death, I'd say, and I'd rather that was cut out. But really, it's a rollicking adventure that deserves a lot of attention and hopefully will become a mainstay of people's Blu-ray collections with their kids because, like I say, it's much, much better than we deserve. How to Train Your Dragon 2, sorry for talking so much about it, really did love it quite a lot, and um, go and see it in the cinema because the flying stuff is spectacular. It's a bit confusing because it was out in Ireland a week ago and it was in Scotland, out in Scotland two weeks ago, and I wonder why they've done that. But it's out now in the whole of the UK, so I really do recommend you go and see it. And it's been previewing here for the last couple of weeks yeah. as well. So it's been a weekend. Isn't that unusual? I it's a strange, yeah, it's a strange release pattern. Uh, Scotland's doing that a few times, actually. I've noticed if you look down you know, the website we use an awful lot to keep our, our eye on release dates. Uh, they're getting Planes 2 a week ahead of everyone else. And they're getting another animated movie in mm. uh, September, October, a week ahead of everyone else. And, uh, you know, you just wonder, is this, you know, is this the pro-independence people going, oh, if you were falling for us, look at this. And, oh, we get Planes 2 a week early. <laughs> Everyone's going, yay, let's <laughs> vote yes. I have these Japanese movies you might be interested in. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm in all two. of them, but you won't spot me. <laughs> Four stars, then, for How to Turn Your Dragon 2. Uh, so we've had a five-star f- and two four-star films, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. No, no, wait, there's another one. Uh, there's a big release of the week in terms of how big the film is. It's Michael Bay's Transformers 4. It's another four, so I think mm. that's going to be a good sign. Uh, Age of Extinction, in which an entirely new human cast, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Jack Rayner, who we've heard already, Nicola Peltz, uh, Stanley Tucci, uh, unite with Optimus Prime, who's returning uh, Optimus Prime and Bumblebee the only two returning cast members uh, from the previous three films to fight a threat that's so absurdly plotted uh, by Aaron Kruger that it would take you ages to tell you about so what did we make of Transformers 4 I haven't seen it but I'm pretty sure I could do a good stab reviewing it if you want me to you know what that's good. this could be fun go on give it a go alright so <clears throat> the story picks up with um, the world in you know recovering Avengers style I suppose from this colossal battle in Chicago five years previously mm-hmm. everything feels good but mm, shadowy forces at work one of Ooh. them played by Frazier Frazier he's out there and yeah. he mm, you get an early probably get an early look at him because he's going to do bad stuff by the yeah. way, so keep your eye on scared. that guy yeah and then mm-hmm. cut to the Midwest or somewhere in the countryside Texas. Smallville Texas, Texas whatever yeah. Mark Wahlberg family Who's, guy who doesn't have a Texan accent decent guy bad accent work but he's just doing his bit Picks up his truck because he likes cars and trucks. Because who doesn't, right? Isn't it easy yet? Yeah. Little does he know Ooh. that it he's got ripped off on that Prius. Also, that the truck he bought is a massive robot. Yes, Optimus Prime. And now, when the bad things that we've already referred to start happening, mm-hmm. which involve other robots and probably yes. secret government plans, secret government plans, nasty nefarious so stuff secret. that is in literally no one's interest at all, even the bad guys, because it can destroy everything. Happen only that truck and the Prius, but Optimus Prime in particular, and Mark Wahlberg, can galvanise the forces of good, rally around them, yes. no pun intended, uh-huh. to fight back. That's the first five minutes. The <laughs> no, following the first 76 hours. hours. No, 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 joking, joking aside, joking aside, you've done, honestly, I'm going to stop We're not there. even there. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. You've done incredibly well. Yeah. That's a very good setup, but pretty much that it. gets Wait. you to the second hour. Okay. It does. Oh, does it? It does. It does. I'm not joking. Oh, okay. It my, does. my abiding feeling with this film when I walked out was... 
it's two steps forward and about seven steps kind of diagonally sideways. It's it does do things better than the other films. Mm. Uh, I think it tones down a lot of the stuff that has started to get people quite annoyed. There's still a little bit of the start from the bottom of the, the feet and then up with the legs of the gorgeous Nicola Peltz and then oh there she is gorgeous beam of light behind it there's a little bit of that but nowhere near the mm. testosterone fueled Megan Foxiness of the second particularly oh, at one point I just I began to wonder how long this film must have taken to shoot given that Michael Bay apparently insists on waiting until magic hour for every single shot yeah, it's just so like well, magic hour. it's just every single shot is and a lot of beautiful shots in this yeah and you're just thinking but yeah but what were they doing the rest of the day were they just hanging out in their trailers going right Michael we got a five minute window right get everyone out there and shoot the shot some moments of the humour are really funny like it's actually mm. quite self aware like a robot but it's there's a moment in the beginning by the way just to point this out where they find Optimus Prime is because Mark Wahlberg's character is a tinkerer what he does is he go and finds old rubbish metal rubbish normally and he bodges them into kind of crappy robots and tries to sell things off for scrap and he's a bit of a tinkerer right and he owes money on his mortgage and all sorts and he's just trying to get along he goes into this old cinema and he finds a couple of old projectors great yes fix them up sell them on to a collector lots of money makes a lot of sense also in the middle of this old theater this old cinema theater covered in dust for some reason american football as well is a massive truck. Mm. Does anybody at any point go, why the hell is there a massive truck in a cinema? <laughs> there is no conceivable reason why anybody, even if they owned the place and hadn't been there for 20 years, they'd go, oh yeah, the truck, I remember that from... Oh. What the hell is a truck doing in here? How did a truck what? get into a cinema? Did how it did have a, truck a ticket? Get into cinema? Yep. Did it have a ticket? Did it come through the back? If so, how big are these doors? How mm. much film do they have to bring in at one time? Anyway, it's full of those little moments. Brings it back bodges um, him together Optimus Prime is backed him back in business but joking aside it does take two hours to get to the point where you know where the plot is the actual plot is that there is a there's a bomb yeah which is called the seed yes. and this seed when you drop it will turn an area the size of Mongolia mm -hmm. into uh, transformium transformium which is the metal that transformers are made of and this and you just got to have to accept it is a metal that has a structure that allows it to obviously bend and shape and flip and turn into either a gun for a fucking head there is a character in this film with a gun for a head it's ridiculous but they have to drop this bomb and if they drop this bomb it turns into a transformium then you can take that transformium and oh, do, oh, oh, oh can't say too much oh, can't. oh anyway that setup is the beginning of act three Yes. That imminent threat, they have to stop this MacGuffin, mm. starts an hour and a half into this film. It does. But it does. But it also leads to one of my favourite things about this movie, which is uh, the disastrous decision to call this thing the seed, which means you have brilliant actors. Uh, you have Stanley Tucci, you have Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer, Grammer, you have Mark Wahlberg uh, running around yelling... Where's the seed? I want the seed. Give me the seed. I need to unleash the seed without a hint of irony or even, you know, just winking at the camera. Uh, there are honestly more references and mentions of the word seed in this than the word boogie nights. It's extraordinary. <laughs> and you're, you're just sitting there, if you're a fan of innuendo, as, as, as I am, uh, you're just sitting there trying hard to, trying hard to keep it. It also brought back bad memories from Mark Wahlberg of the happening, you would have thought. Yeah, there are a couple of moments in this where he's, he's happily in esque, uh, but otherwise, I think he's he's a, he's an upgrade definitely I on like Shia LaBeouf as yeah. as the uh, as the lead of of this. Interesting of Jack Rayner, uh, whose character is very interesting in some weird ways. He's almost a Shia LaBeouf character in that he's you know, but he's he's hunkier than Shia LaBeouf. He's like he's meant to be like the the next generation of big muscly, arm stubbly. 
hero guy. But he has moments where he just panics and runs around screaming a lot, uh, which is weird. Nicola Peltz, who uh, is the Megan Fox, Rosie Huntington Whiteley of the movie, gets nothing to do. She's really short. Literally just screams, and that's all she gets to do. She and also gets MacGuffined. Like, she is really, really short changed in this film. Oh, she really? Get, yeah. She gets MacGuffined. She gets, and this is going to blow your mind, guess. Everyone gets a chance to hide behind waist-high wall cover as something really big happens behind them but doesn't affect them in the slightest as mm. they carry a MacGuffin. Yeah. How many times are we going to see this? But the action, when it comes, is well orchestrated, and I do get a kick out of it, but there's not enough of it, and it doesn't come quickly enough. There's a great aerial sequence in Chicago, which I really enjoyed. The final fight, is, uh, which is magically transformed to, uh, transported to Beijing. And then which, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, and... Yeah. I'm, I honestly missed how they got from Beijing to Hong Kong. It's because there is a factory there, and they needed to go to that factory. Anyway, does it even matter? Do you still care about that point? No, I, no. You, you, well, that's the thing. From for me personally, uh, this this film is 165 minutes long. I just looked it up. This is one minute shorter than Boyhood, which was filmed over 12 years. This feels like it was being screened to you at a period over a period of 12 years. It feels it feels really long. You know, we gave spoiler alert. We gave this film two stars, which is uh, which says it's as bad as Dark of the Moon, the last Transformers movie, which mm. I thought was just god awful, absolutely god awful. Um, but like Ali says, it actually improves in that film an awful lot. It does. Uh, it really does. It it issues all the ridiculous, over the top, really badly acted comic the comic comic relief. So there's, there's no, no there's no John Turturro in this. There's no John Malkovich gurney for all he's worth. There's no Ken Jeong, um, even though mercifully he was thrown out of a window to his death in Transformers Three. Uh, there's no one like that mugging shamelessly for the cameras. It tones that sort of stuff down, which is great. The action sequences are more are clearer to follow. There's more clarity. There's more geography. You can actually understand what's going on. But it's the length. It's the length and the bombast. And the bombast just becomes dull by the end. But it's mainly the length. There's an entire sequence, which is virtually the entire second act, where our heroes have to, A, infiltrate this sort of Steve Jobsy, Apple-y, kind of factory where Stanley Tucci who is the film's main saving grace oh, uh, so is, is introduced uh, he's a he's a, a massive boffin who is working with Kelsey Grammer and the and the evil robots uh, because he he gets slightly hoodwinked and he, he turns good at the end yay um, but um, so we, we're introduced to him and then there's a big action sequence in there where nothing makes any sense and then we go to our heroes end up in a spaceship and that sequence, and they run around the spaceship for about, it feels like an hour. And that entire then. thing could be jettisoned. The entire thing could be jettisoned. If you lose an hour from this movie, you actually have a, a movie that's probably yes. as fun as the first Transformers. That's my abiding feeling for this film. It does do things better. It actually gets the humour better. It turns down the sexism, which was a big problem for me. It tones, it tones down a lot of the stuff that was too much. I agree with the geography of the fight scenes. Here's an example of some of the humour which I was trying to talk about earlier, but I just got sidetracked because this film's so big and vast and chunky and full of different different pieces um it begins with this guy walking around this old cinema going god the cinema's closed down because just movies these days they're just massive action things or sequels or reboots am i right <laughs> and it's like one step away from looking at the camera going see what we did there which is fine and i kind of like it it's actually pretty good for what it's worth later on this movie has uh, john goodman playing this actually quite fun big bulky um army truck uh, transformer that is just smoking this seemingly purposeless cigar and has loads of grenades on him and stuff anyway so he's in it as John Goodman and then Bumblebee when he's talking earlier quotes John Goodman as Walter from the Big Lebowski that's one of the quotes he uses and then he jumps to um, Beverly Hills Cop 
uh, and it's just oh wow there's there's some really clever stuff going on here like there's it seems to be you know it, it seems to be kind of meta hmm. and then you have yet another 20 minute sequence of just metal on metal ILMMA just constant crushing and smashing and whatever what I would recommend is that whenever a Transformer movie comes out you should go to YouTube and type in uh, all the Transformers fight scenes there's a new 20 minute cut where you just watch 20 minutes of robot versus robot and mm. that's Ooh. great what a great lunchtime treat but I wonder whether it's worth paying the £10 plus to sit down for two and a half hours plus or you can email me and I'll come around with a couple of walks and just well, pick you in the face then. yeah um, yeah there, there, are, there are still a couple of things to point out about this movie one uh, Optimus Prime who is a returning hero um, is a dick <laughs> There's no other way to say it. He is a raging dick. He's a prime dick. He absolutely is. From the off, he's, you know, and I guess he's been in hiding for the last five years. The whole idea is that the government, uh, Kelsey Grammer, have teamed up with uh, an evil Decepticon bounty hunter. Because uh, he's in that to, cinema, which in Transformers films. To, uh, well, he's a, no, he's not a Decepticon. He's a bounty hunter. He's an evil bounty hunter. Uh, robot. He's, he's round, yeah, robot. And uh, he's... They're hunting down all robots, including the good Autobots on Earth. So a lot of Autobots we knew and loved <laughs> in the last couple of movies are, are dead uh, by the time this one starts. It's like Days of Future Past uh, in that respect. Um, so, but Optimus Prime, so he's been on, he's been on the run. He's been in hiding for the last five years. But he just has such a thing about mankind and humanity, and he's constantly making great speeches, and he's constantly just treating people horribly um, and uh, he, he kills humans in cold blood in this movie which is kind of just oh wow what just happened to that beloved character I used to have a toy of as a child oh dear this is oh dear this is not good but yeah it's he's, he's a bit of a bit of a we haven't even talked about the Dinobots which you uh, we were for me at least the big big sell of this film he would have learned from all his mistakes and also the Dinobots will come in and inject new old metal life into this franchise and they do to an extent I'm really I'm sorry to say this if this is crushing anybody's dreams for the last five to ten minutes of the film this movie as we say is 165 minutes yeah and the last ten or so of them maybe 15 I'll look at my watch because um, uh, I'd forgotten they were in it the movie was going on for so long and it was winding down to what I thought was surely the climax it's got to finish now and then it doesn't but then another climax looms into the into the interview and then the Dinobots appear and you got, I looked at my watch, and there was about 40 minutes to go, 35 minutes to go by that point, and I'd completely forgotten they were in the film, and they're used appallingly. But they, um, only, they only actually kick ass for about 5, 10 yes, minutes. Yes, I agree, if that. Uh, and I just think they're, they're such an afterthought, such a throwaway thing. Um, uh, originally, apparently, the um, scriptwriter, our new best friend, uh, actually viewed this film as a way of setting them up for the next film but then they decided as they were making it that, that they just were too excited about the, the characters mm. and that they just wanted them in there but one last thing I know we've spent more time on this than we have in Boyhood and, and, and Phyllis Wiggling's thing, but there's, there's a lot more to say there's a lot more to say a lot more to rant about this uh, yeah. one last thing in, for, in its, to its benefit as an example of its good humour obviously the famous thing on set was that Michael Bay and a couple of other people were attacked by a somewhat unhinged man with a air conditioner and in this film in a nod to that story, someone throws an air conditioning unit <laughs> at someone else. 
And this is what I mean. When that happens, I go, great, that's the Michael Bay of The Rock. I know that is funny and they know what they're doing. The way he behaves with Titus Welliver, who we love, mm. that one line that you love from this film. Yes. Uh, there are two great lines in this film. One I won't repeat. Stanley Tucci says towards the end of the film. The other one I've already tweeted about it, so I think it's fair game. Uh, Titus Welliver, who plays an evil CIA acolyte of Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer actually is decent in this film. Turns up and at Mark Wahlberg's farm, because <laughs> they're looking for Optimus Prime. And uh, Wahlberg's like, you can't come onto my farm. Uh, you don't have a warrant. And Titus Welliver leans into him and goes, my face is my warrant. Which doesn't make any sense and could legally be challenged. But, um, yeah, it kind of works. Wahlberg kind of goes, oh, all right. then." I love it. <laughs> okay, it's bro. honestly so funny. And also we should just mention again that Stanley Tucci walks away with the best actor in this otherwise not very good film award. Uh, yeah. He's very funny, very engaging. Uh, he gets the humour just right. He gets it just right. And as ever, he is the most valuable player. He is, absolutely. Uh, and it's a weird thing. There are things recommended about this film, uh, but there are also there's, uh, there's probably way more not to recommend it. Uh, so that's why we gave Transformers Age of Extinction two stars. Join us in two years' time, because there'll be another one. Yeah, and also join us in two years' time when we were finished reviewing this. I do apologise. Yes, indeed. Uh, so much that we still haven't mentioned about that film. Anyway, but that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. Well, we'll be joined by Andy Serkis, uh, star of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and Mr. Brett Ratner, director of Hercules. Uh, also look out for our Dawn of the Planet of the Apes spoiler special on Monday 21st of July. Uh, that's going to be with Matt Reeves, the director of the movie, talking in detail about all his twists and turns. And of course, as mentioned earlier on, our fantastic Peter Fonda uh, podcast special is available for you to listen to right now. Uh, it's well worth an hour of your time. Until then, it's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to applaud Michael Bay for watching Irish independent films, but plead with him never to watch Mrs. Brown's Boys the movie. Can you imagine the horror that might be unleashed in Transformers 5? The robot. Doesn't bear thinking about. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>